Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today, we are talking to Ian Brazier, who retired from the United States Marine Corps in 2017. And if I read your LinkedIn profile right, Ian, you did 30 full years. That's right. I started off right out of high school in the Marine Corps Reserves and kind of carried that Marine Corps Reserve enlisted status throughout undergraduate education and then got commissioned. And shortly thereafter, you know, I I did a different law program, but yeah, just a little over 30 years of service. You had a lot of operational, strategic, and policy jobs, did you not? I did. In my my view, I was I was very fortunate in a number of a number of assignments, and just happened to be with the right operational unit after September 11th, with an operational unit that was scheduled to deploy right around March of 2003 for the invasion of Iraq. So yeah, I was very fortunate to stay a lot of the time in the operating forces. Take us up to when you started really thinking about what comes next. 30 years is a long time. You're sort of like Brooksy from Shawshank Redemption in that you've been institutionalized. And now you have to turn that page. So take us back. After I got promoted to colonel, I started thinking about really what I wanted to do next. Outside the Marine Corps, I knew that I had to do a certain number of years if I wanted to retire as a colonel, but I was anxious to try something new. And part of that thought process for me was since the age of 18, I'd been in one capacity or another in the United States Marine Corps. I didn't want to end up in the older years thinking that the only thing I really ever did was the Marine Corps, even though that would have been honorable and a great life adventure. And so I started to think about all of those potential opportunities after the Marine Corps legal career that I wanted to do. And I wanted to do something different. That something different was joining a humanitarian organization, the only international organization recognized in the Geneva Conventions, and that's the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I had forged a long-term relationship with the ICRC starting back in Afghanistan in 2001, where I was part of the introduction of initial conventional forces into southern Afghanistan. The first prisoner that my unit had was John Walker Lind. Fascinating legal issues associated with that, the American Taliban. Shortly thereafter, right around December 2001, I began working all day, every day with delegates from the International Committee of the Red Cross that were visiting and registering a lot of the prisoners first detained in the war on terror. I worked so closely and for such a period of time with the ICRC delegates, I really began to respect them and their humanitarian role in armed conflict and their commitment to mission. It was a much different mission than I was accustomed to, you know, in the Navy Marine Corps team. But I think all of us serving in any branch of the the U.S. military appreciates people that take their mission seriously. And the ICRC certainly did that. So when I was beginning to think about leaving, 
I started thinking about what employment for the ICRC might look like. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something meaningful. The understanding that you will have a retirement, certainly active duty, you'll have it immediately. If you're in the reserves, it may be a slight delay for that retirement kicks in, so to speak. But you have, I think, this is the way I approached it, some bit of luxury for the what's next to pick what you want to do, not necessarily what you have to do to get a particular dollar figure. I had another friend that retired from the Army after a long service in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. And he joined the American Red Cross, an entirely different organization than the International Committee of the Red Cross. But he and I had a a similar conversation like the one we're having. We picked a job that we really wanted to do, and it was a fairly sizable pay cut from the 06 pay that we were getting. And we didn't care because we were doing something that we wanted to do. I'm always, uh, you know, grateful that I took that pass because I did something. I did something entirely different. I worked with the International Committee Red Cross. I got to work with the North American delegation. I mean, they only have one or two legal advisors for that delegation in the United States, do they not? Over the last 20 years, which has been busy for the ICRC, just like it's been busy for the U.S. military because of the operational commitments associated with Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and some of the other conflicts that the U.S. is involved in over that two-decade period, they've gone from one legal advisor now to four. And I was part of that team when it was about three legal advisors based in Washington for the regional delegation, which handles the United States and Canada. At what point did you start talking to the International Committee of the Red Cross? Six months out, a year out, after you retired? I didn't have a retirement date. I was at the White House in my final military assignment at the National Security Council and really having a fascinating experience working at the White House during presidential transition. I served the first six months under President Obama and the second six months under President Trump. We got to see General Flynn come in as the National Security Advisor. We got to see him depart a couple of weeks later. So a fascinating period of time in national security. In February and March of 2017, right about the time that I'm getting close to eligibility to retire as a colonel, because I had maintained a relationship with the ICRC over two decades, it wasn't, and I think this is important for transitioning judge advocates, is You know, there are a lot of cliches. You know, you can't hand out business cards during a crisis. You can't surge trust, right? Well, you can't just create relationships for the what's next overnight. Hopefully, you have been cultivating relationships inside and outside the military for a long time. Hopefully, it's natural to you. It's not only that, you know, I'm an extrovert, which I am. I think introverts, too, need to gain and maintain relationships such that when you are about to transition or you're thinking about transitioning, you have a series of relationships, friends, colleagues, current and former on the outside that you can kind of scope things out with. So something I posted the other day is you can't be afraid to talk to people and you'll find out that people are willing to talk to you, especially the people that you served with who are always willing to give you not, I don't want to say give you a handout, but give you a hand as you try to discern what you want to do. Right. Going back to a number of cliches, some of which are true, right? From, you know, Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, Coast Guard, legal practice, you know, mission first people always. And it's all about the people. And the what's next after your military legal career is all about the people too. 
you need to have not only a set of relationships. I don't use the term networking. I don't like it. I think it brings, you know, kind of a sense of like you put together a matrix and how you're going to leverage your friends or business relationships to do something for you. So I use the term relationships because that's the way I think about it is do you have an established relationship with a bunch of different people on the outside and on the inside such that they can help you think through things. And I think that makes life more interesting too outside of the work area is that you have a lot of different people that you call friends, colleagues, whether it's current or former, that you can scope things out with to help you calibrate how you're thinking about anything. You know, the context of this discussion, you know, what's uh, how to transition and what's interesting to you on the other side of your DD-214. Take us now to moving from the International Committee of the Red Cross to Department of Homeland Security, where you are now. It's a great segue because it is about relationships. And I maintained a relationship with a number of friends that retired from the military legal community that went to Department of Homeland Security. At the time, you know, I'd been in the ICRC in the Washington delegation for about two years. I think it was ingrained in me through kind of our our shared military service is that every two to three years, you're going to get a new job. I look forward to that. And so I was with the ICRC and and I I really had a great experience with, with that organization. But I began to have that, you know, kind of wanderlust come back into my mind. And I started talking with people that I knew, including at the Department of Homeland Security and an old colleague from the joint staff that I shared a cubicle with for a year or two began talking to me about opportunities in Homeland Security come into a couple of different national security portfolios. So there was an existing relationship that created a degree of formality that I think was helpful and a degree of trust. I trusted him. He trusted me. We'd work some difficult issues together. He was aware of my background. And I think that's a good segue. And I know we were going to get there anyways, like how to navigate USA jobs and how to find federal jobs, for example. So there's no, typically no getting around putting in an application. So even if you have established relationships, you're going to put in an application. And a lot of those for attorney positions are including a writing sample. Now that's challenging for a lot of us judge advocates, right? Because if I was to come to you, as was the case with me, like, give me a writing sample. Well, I wrote a memo a couple of years ago for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or for General Jones at a command, but you're not free to forward that legal memo as part of your writing sample unless you jump through a couple of hoops to do that. Yeah, getting back to your question, like how did I arrive at Homeland Security was through a relationship that had existed for a number of years that I had maintained. And I was able to, at least when I applied through USA Jobs, and that resume arrives on somebody's desk, probably virtually, that there's a name that they're familiar with, there's a context. And I think that's that can be incredibly helpful in your job search. USA Jobs, you hear a lot of adjectives and verbs and descriptions. What was your experience? Was it easy, hard? Is it intuitive, counterintuitive? Pretty easy, to tell you the truth. I thought it was pretty straightforward is that you know there's going to be a resume and the particular job that you're applying for may have different requirements. I thought it was pretty easy to navigate. You upload this, you upload that, and hope that you're well-received. I didn't toil too much about having the best resume format. 
I thought I had a pretty decent resume format. I think it's great for more mature people like you and me, Tom, is to talk with and look at what the younger people applying for jobs, what are their resumes look like, to make sure that you're not falling into a trap like, hey, years ago, I had this resume and this is great. And there are certain ways of, you know, in the modern world of figuring out like what the right format is for your resume. And there's not one, but there are a couple of good ones. And I think with your resume, with USA Jobs, is how you civilianize your resume. I'm going back to undergraduate studies and taking my first public speaking course, remembering that professor was like, what's the most important thing about public speaking? The answer is understanding your audience. So I think, who is your USA Jobs audience? And it's going to be different. And you may have different resumes. I suggest this. Or you're just going to do something outside the U.S. government, having different resumes that are going to be oriented toward that particular audience. That's really important. And when you get into interviews, being able to understand, because you've done your homework, what that audience is. So about interviews, did you go through interviews with either the two post-government places that you worked or post-military places? I did. And I enjoyed the process. For the ICRC, there were a series of interviews. And then there were some panel interviews that I thought were, depending on how you approach it, it's either kind of a fun conversation or it's a little bit unique to be sitting alone at a table with four other people. So I did a fair amount of interviews for the ICRC, and I did a a number of interviews at Homeland Security, including a panel interview uh, near the end. And then you have kind of the confirmation interview with maybe perhaps a senior official at the end of the kind of interview pipeline. So yeah, a number of interviews. And then I think I learned a lot in the last year because my office, in particular, my portfolio at Homeland Security hired two new lawyers and going through the process of interviewing people teaches you a lot about how to be interviewed. How long did it take for you from the time that you submitted your USA jobs, the resume, until you were brought on board at Department of Homeland Security? To be precise, it was about six months from the time that I applied, went through the interviews. They said, yes, we'd like to have you. So about a six-month period of time, but that was mostly related to my security clearance. I think a lot of transitioning judge advocates that have a clearance, and I'm certain all of them will have at least a secret clearance, is how that transfers. If you have a break in time, like I did with the ICRC, If I recall, that security clearance lapsed. I didn't have one at the ICRC, particularly working for an international organization based in Geneva, Switzerland. (laughs) I'm not going to maintain a security clearance. So there is a bit of time involved, as you might imagine, to go through a reinvestigation for that clearance. And even if, for example, one of the people that was hired to come on my team at Homeland Security was coming from the Defense Department as a civilian GS employee, that took some time. I think we interviewed him in October, and he finally came on board that following February. So there's some time involved, particularly as if you're talking about transferring security clearances or doing a reinvestigation of your clearance. The point that I'm getting at, you hear applying for work about three to four months from when you're ready to start working. But it sounds like if you're going for government work, you should probably put those applications in a little bit earlier. 
Right. I, I think that's right. A lot of the USA jobs, um, you know, like any tool, you've got to become accustomed to working with that tool and navigating it. It'll be a little bit new to, I think, a lot of judge advocates that are thinking about transition. But get on there every day, try out the tool, look around, and start looking at the different job postings out there on USA Jobs. Sometimes they're open for an incredibly long period of time. I was just talking with a friend this week about a position at the Department of Treasury that has been open since August, and it's now February. And I think you see those types of positions, they're going to hire a lot of people from one posting on USA Jobs. So that's important to know. Sometimes they're a posting that's open for a two-week period, but they're going to hire one, two, three people, perhaps, for that particular posting. My client this week advertised on USA Jobs for a few positions, not legal positions. But shortly thereafter on LinkedIn, they said, hey, just we're closing this because of the overwhelming amount of applications that we receive. So those kind of high interest positions out there on USA Jobs, that there may be an abundance of applications. And I, I think that's one thing to note too. So for the subject matter, we posted on USA Jobs last year for two attorney advisor positions. And I think we received fairly quickly uh, in excess of 120 applications for two positions. There's a much longer conversation to be had, like how do you get noticed? And I think hearkening back to our conversation from a little while ago about relationships is probably the best way to get noticed as opposed to how distinguished your military legal career is. Well, welcome aboard, shipmate. You may be in a stack of really accomplished people competing for this position. And sometimes I think being able to make phone calls and send emails like, hey, does anybody know anybody in this position? That's not dirty. This is what you do. This is what you do. This is what everybody does, is you don't rely on, hey, I went to a decent school and I had a GPA, decent GPA 20, 25, 30 years ago, and look at me. I did a lot of great things in the Navy, Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force, and you should hire me. Well, there's going to be a stack of great candidates out there. Reach out to people that you don't know on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm interested in this position. I see you might have something to do with that. Would you be willing to talk? And you know how I respond to those LinkedIn requests from people that I've never met? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk. I did one time apply for a job on USA Jobs. I thought I was going to retire back in 2016. And it was a retired JAG that was going to be, I don't know if he's going to be on the board, but he said to me, he said, listen, I, I can talk to you and answer your questions right up until the point that the window closes. Once it closes, we're done talking. And it was, and it was very helpful. And I, I kind of, I don't want to say forgotten about that, but your, your comment of reaching out to people just reminded me that that's a fair process of trying to learn about the job and learning about the culture that you're going to be going in so that you can be prepared for the interview to work on relationships and probably to ask questions there. Shifting gears a little bit, when they decided that they were going to make you an offer, were you able to negotiate some of your terms of employment? Uh, you hear this with people leaving the military, being able to get, for example, increased leave accrual and things. But in your case, you had gone to a non-governmental organization. Were you still able to have some leeway in negotiating your, your terms of employment with the DHS? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think negotiating whether you're going to a GS position through USA Jobs or or any other position is like being understand that you're no longer in the military. It's no longer about this dance that you have with the assignments folks, right? Like, hey, we're thinking Okinawa. And you're like, yeah, that's great. That's a good job. Or I'm not thinking about Okinawa. Once you leave the government, there's a negotiation for salary for particular GS levels. They may say, hey, you make a great candidate at GS 14. So it's not only the GS level, it's the steps within that level. And so, for example, if you're keen on joining a federal agency as a GS-15, the difference between GS-15 step one and GS-15 step seven or eight is a lot of money. There's also the negotiation for leave. The standard, I think, for kind of GS jobs is you're going to start off with four hours of leave per pay period, and you should negotiate that. And there are plenty of people that you can reach out to to help you think through how to be really convincing in your arguments that you ought to get more leave. So there are a lot of things to think about. My period in the ICRC, I don't think that counted against me. I still had three decades of service that I could say, listen, I've served at this level. I bring this level of experience and expertise. And therefore, you need to bring me in at the very highest level and pay me the most and give me the most amount of leave. So I I think there are, yeah, definitely strategies with how to think about that. If someone was to come to you and say, Ian, convince me why I should go government service, what, in your opinion, are the advantages of government service? Well, I think one of the advantages is if you land in government service and something that you're really excited about, you get to continue to serve. I think there's a lot of intangible benefit to that is that it's not all about the money. It's a sense of mission that I've become kind of enamored with over you know, uh, how many ever years of service that anybody has who's, who's, thinking, about, who's thinking about leaving the, the legal community and the military. So there's one advantage there. I think there is, after you get through your initial probationary period, and I will tell you as of next week, I think I'm past my two-year probationary period at Homeland Security. But, you know, uh, maybe I could get fired at any minute before that actually <laughs> actually vests, so to speak. Well, we'll um, hold this podcast until after that probationary period's over. That's, that's, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of advantages. Uh, so one is the service, that sense of mission, the sense of contribution to that mission. Second, I think it's undeniable that there is a sense of stability in that is that most likely your job is not going to go away. And I think after you trigger that probationary period, even if they did away with that particular job, and we've all probably lived through reorganizations of one of our respective legal communities, and we're going to move these people, that position no longer is available. You know, I think you're past that probationary period, you land somewhere else, and hopefully you land in perhaps a new portfolio, with it on a new team and that you're, you're just not out on the street. And I think over, we've seen over the last couple of years and throughout the pandemic, we've had a lot of friends that on the outside of government that, you know, show up and there's no job to be had. It's gone. For example, when I was with the ICRC, the employment contract that I had 
there was an employment contract. I was an at-will employee. And if you kind of go back to maybe your time in legal as a legal assistance attorney or back to some of the courses you may have taken in uh, law school, an at-will contract means you can leave at any time for any reason, and they can let you go for any time for any reason. And so there's that exhilaration about being in that type of employment. And hopefully it's great. But, you know, I've had friends that show up one day and they're like, you know, this is not working out and we're going to ask you to go and they can do that. There's a lot of freedom with like, you know, I found something else and I'm starting next week and I'm leaving and I'm emptying my desk today. Thanks for how many ever years of service in this particular company. So there's a good degree of stability in federal service. You're on a committee on foreign investment, United States, and the U.S. telecom sector. That's yeah. not something you necessarily did in the military, was it? No, it is not at all. But there are familiar elements between my military service and what I'm doing now. One, it's national security. Two, it's U.S. interagency. And by that, I mean that I have the privilege in my current job and in a few of my military assignments, being on the Department of Defense team, but working with Department of Justice, the Department of State. Department of Treasury, Department of Commerce, and all of the, those other executive branch departments and agencies that contribute to the national security mission. So my job is in completely interagency every day, all day, and I really enjoy that. So there are some familiar elements, but as far as what I'm doing in my portfolio, that's all new. You know, it's interesting, I think, too, when you're thinking about transition, you have your comfort zone, right? If you spent a lot of time in the courtroom, you were a military judge, you served on the appellate bench, military justice is your thing. So you could do criminal law, you could prosecute, you could defend, you could do a lot of things. That's your comfort zone. For me, if I think about what I did in the military and kind of what I'm doing now, there are some familiar aspects, kind of like with any new assignment. But uh, the unfamiliar aspects of my new position is that I work on what we call national security agreements. It's a really a contract between the US government and a corporation. If I think back to first year of law school, what was the subject that I liked the least? It was contracts. But now, some decades later, a lot of my daily work is with a national security agreement, a, a national security contract with, with a corporation. And because there is a national security link or nexus, my team and I love diving into a, a draft national security agreement or an existing national security with a big corporation out there and kind of navigating that and advising a client on this is the contract is firm. This is where we have some flexibility. This is where the corporation can do that. This is where the U.S. government can do this. It's been really, really fun for me. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were approaching retirement from the Marine Corps? Or stated another way, what, if anything, would you have done differently? I wouldn't have done anything differently. I won't say that I was omniscient, that I was all-knowing when I was transitioning. But a couple of things that we've talked about that have reinforced kind of the way I think about this. I think recognizing how important relationships are on the inside and the outside. And I think I have to continually check myself even though I've been out of the Marine Corps for about four years now. One of my friends, actually, he was my deputy staff judge advocate in a previous assignment, and he introduced me to the phrase freeze-dried, that 
The day that you retire, there are many, many great officers and listed members of our respective services that are freeze-dried at that moment. It might be socially or professionally, they're freeze-dried at that moment, and they can't divorce themselves or think about their lives any differently than their military service. Because we have been institutionalized, like Shawshank Redemption. We think about our post-government life almost the way we did about our military life. And, And just being able to get past that, and I think having some comfort in you're no longer in a super hierarchy like you were in the Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force. I think employers are looking for you to break out of that kind of that freeze-dried mentality. And you're going to see this in interviews where they're going to try to test you, like, are you only a Marine or can you kind of think about things differently? What I would do differently, I'm not sure I would do anything differently because I've really had pretty good transitions and I'm very grateful for that, but maybe reinforcing some of the things that I thought about when I was transitioning that are even more important to me in my thinking today is being able to be nimble in your thinking, to think differently and, you know, make sure that you understand how important relationships are. It's kind of how I think about any transition in a professional career. Ian, this has been fantastic. This was really a good discussion. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. And to all the listeners out there, stay motivated. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.